What's up, everybody? Welcome to Talk It Out Podcast. This is your girl, Gabby. Joy. And KT. And we have a very special guest coming all the way from Memphis, Tennessee, Miss Tammy Sawyer. Everybody clap it up for Miss Tammy Sawyer. Clap it up, clap it up, clap it up. Uh, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing, and where people can find you if they want to learn a little bit more about you? Sure thing. Thanks, y'all, for mm-hmm. having me on today. Um, I am Tammy Sawyer. I'm currently uh, one of the uh, black women running for office this year in 2018. I'm running for county commission here in Memphis. Uh, you can follow me at Tammy Sawyer. That's T-A-M-I-S-A-W-Y-E-R. That's also how you can find me on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, and in addition to that, I've been a social justice organizer here in my community, um, working with the Movement for Black Lives and other issues that impact our community, namely education, and most recently, the successful removal of Confederate statues in my hometown Woo-woo. through the organization I found that take them down nine on one. Yes, and that was that was like a. We were hearing about that. Like, that was all over the world. People were sharing that story. And I, I was proud to be a Memphian. And I was proud of the work that you were doing when that was over everywhere. And um, very successful campaign. Because that, that has been a controversy. I mean, ever since it's been erected, people have always been talking about why do we have that racist man in mm-hmm. our park in the predominantly black city it was just a mess but um yes thank you so much for coming on tammy we're happy to have you we're gonna have a good time uh remember you can find us on social media facebook.com slash talk it out podcast instagram at talk it out podcast twitter at talk it out underscore pod you can listen to us also on soundcloud soundcloud.com slash talk it out as well as tiopodcast.com slash episodes um, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, tune in, all that good stuff. All right, so let's get right into it. I think KT has the first question for you, Miss Tammy. Go ahead, KT. Yep. So uh, I I kind of want to get right into. I want to talk about the statues a little bit. And my first question to you is: um, Many people basically feel like the statues were a representation of the past. And that we needed to acknowledge that past. Why do you think that they feel that way? And why do you think it was important that those statues were taken down? No doubt, KT. So those statues are a representation of the past. Um, They're a representation of the racist history uh, that has clouded our progress here in Memphis. Um, And really all across the country, as there's over 700 Confederate statues that are placed across the country, mostly in the South. Um, When you remove a structure such as a statue, you don't erase history. Mm -hmm. Like, the Confederacy did not stop happening the day that the statues came down in Memphis. Um, That was still our history. It's still in the history books. It's something that we still know. Our oral history, our kids will continue to be raised knowing uh, the history of racism and slavery. Mm -hmm. And as black people, we live that history every day. Right. Um, And so removing the statues, because statues are considered venerated objects, meaning that they have a place of reverence. People uh, go to them to look up in awe and celebration of the things these people have contributed to society. So removing these statues means you're removing the uh, history of racism from Mm -hmm. a place of honor. 
you're not erasing the history. What you're doing is taking away the celebration of that history. And so the reason it was important was because here in Memphis, we live in a town that is 65% plus black. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you add in all people of color, even more majority city for people of color. And here we are in this city, but the amount of race that we, the amount of wealth that black people and people of color hold in the city is less than 10%. Right. Our access to educational opportunity is low. Mm-hmm. Um, we are relegated to parts of the town that don't get the same services. Our streets aren't paved. Our schools aren't taken care of. Um, there still continues to just be a lack of access to opportunity here based on race. I mean, you can look at the way lines are drawn just to uh, see how segregated our city really is. And so as we try to defeat those systemic structures, right, Mm -hmm. we also were working on taking down the physical, uh, the physical representations of this oppression. And I think both are important. What do you say? Because there's a (laughs) there's a popular Mm -hmm. Memphis pastor, which, you know, goes by the name of Thaddeus Matthews. I'm sure everybody's heard of him. Um, When the statue was taken down, he had Mm -hmm. some criticism for you and other people. He said that. Pretty much y'all are worried about the wrong things. He said Mm -hmm. all this crime, black on black crime, folks shooting each other up. Why are y'all worried about a a statue of a dead white man? Y'all need to be out here protesting about this black on black crime. What do you say to people that say that? Well, thankfully, I don't get my marching orders from Thaddeus Matthews. Um, (laughs) And if I paid him any attention... I would be worried about the wrong things. That's first things first. I don't pay that man any attention. Mm -hmm. Um, But secondly, the assumption that all we were working on was the statues is misleading and inaccurate. Um, Everyone involved in taking down 911 is is involved in so many other avenues. Um, Like, if you lined up everything we do, uh, we are touching every issue of oppression uh, in Memphis. And to me, the Black-on-Black violence that people talk about, which if we go into the numbers and all this other stuff, is not as much of an epidemic as people try uh, to sell it as. Yeah. Um, but even if you just want to talk about crime in Memphis, what crime is a symptom of is the fact that 25% of our kids are neither in school nor working. Mm. So they're in the streets get introduced to things uh, that are taking their attention because no one's giving them jobs or keeping them in school. Um, They are joining gangs because they're looking for familial connections because our families are being destroyed by mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. Um, And while people who aren't black are getting rich off uh, marijuana being legalized, uh, black people are still going to jail for petty crimes. Um, for a drug that is now making white people rich across the country. Right, right. But we've our communities have been destroyed because of low-level nonviolent drug offenses. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, when people say, like, that was not the most important thing, I totally agree. Nor was it the only thing, because at the same time we were talking about statues, last year alone, uh, the same folks who were involved were protesting access to clean water. Mm-hmm. The same people were involved... Um, Myself, I led a protest against Jeff Sessions when he came to town Mm -hmm. um, because what ended up happening after he left 
was uh, the Department of Justice removed our youth detention center from um, federal monitoring for um, their um, discrimination against black boys mm-hmm. and by, and removed them early because the county mayor asked Jeff Sessions, could they come off monitoring? Wow. Uh, you know, because they had delivered the Memphis vote to Trump. And so um, now we don't have federal monitoring in the way that we need it yeah. uh, to make sure that our kids aren't being treated disparately in uh, youth detention. And so all these things that we're working on, I work in education every single day mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that teachers are going in the classroom, uplifting students and not oppressing them to make sure they're becoming a part of the community and not just visitors in the community. So all of these things I, you know, think about when folks are saying what we should have been doing. Don't clock us, right? <laughs> what are right. you doing besides trying to get an extra 15 minutes of fame off of what we did? Right, right. And that's right. only one thing. We're, we've, we've, we've continued to do things. Um, I think everyone who worked with us in Taking Down 901 is a warrior in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And that was never the only thing. No one packed up their bags and went home the next day. Right. They're going to continue to see us. There you go. So I'm sure it's hard um, with the criticisms that you get from uh, people who just don't get it or don't want to get it or don't understand. What makes you what made you want to do this to be not only an activist, but an activist in Memphis where you're from? Yeah, I mean, before, like I lived in D.C. for about a decade Mm -hmm. and. My life was chill. Uh, you know, I worked at I worked in the Navy Yard. I went to work. I got off. Sometimes I had a cupcake business, you know, and that was fun. Hmm. And, you know, I enjoyed U Street and the nightlife and just being young in D.C. And as I got older, I was like, I want something more serious. Like, I want to be a person that uses the opportunities that I've been given um, and the privilege that I've received to make change in the world. Like... And I want to go home and do it. Yeah. And it was fun to live like in D.C. or Neverland, as I call it. But one day <laughs> I woke up and was like, you know, I want to I want to leave an impact. You know, I don't want us. You know, Trayvon Martin was a real eye opener for me. Not in saying that I didn't know what was going on in the world, but that our generation couldn't just party it out mm. like that. We had to get busy, you know, that it was time for us to like grow up and be and take on our role um, in continuing the fight for justice for black people. Um, and, and so like, that's what changed life for me. And, you know, Memphis was home and I just saw the immense amount of disparity. I saw the immense amount of continued oppression of struggle. And I was like, that's where I want to go. I want to go back home and I want to make a change for a place that like my nieces can grow up in and be proud to come home to, um, you know, every day. Um, so you're, you're also campaigning on reproductive rights, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is your, what's your current stance on reproductive rights? Yep. Um, so for me, reproductive rights, and I'll share at first, we were running on women's health. Mm-hmm. And I opened it up to reproductive rights because here in Memphis, one in 100 people are living with HIV or an STD. And so when I think about reproductive rights, that falls under that. It's really, to me, the right for a person to choose their, you know, to be who identify as who they identify as 
and to live that life healthy and to live that life free. Um, and so that's whether you want to be a parent or not be a parent, that's access to birth control. That's the right to um, a safe and healthy abortion if someone so chooses that option. That's the right to HIV testing uh, for people who can't afford expensive tests or can't get insurance. Um, that's the right to free condoms. Yeah. Um, that's the right for kids to have real sexual health education um, in high school mm-hmm. so that they're not making up stories for each other about what can and can't get you pregnant or how you can <laughs> or can't get an STD. Yeah. You know, right now it's illegal in Tennessee for our kids to have sexual health training. They have an abstinence only uh, sex ed and mm-hmm. parents have to opt into it. And the way that it's done is in this like whack flyer that goes out and most parents don't know. And so like most kids just don't get it. Or if they do get sex ed, they get like this watered down version of choose abstinence. Right. Right. But. That results in one in 100 of our city being infected with some type of SCI, SCD, or HIV. Wow. Right? That's yeah. almost, epi- that could become an epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when you think about those things and you think about why would anyone make that a law? Because if their kids, the people who are writing these laws, if one of their daughters got an STD or if one of their sons got somebody pregnant, they're going to a a private doctor. Mm -hmm. But they want to keep that right. They want to tell people, well, you're poor. You shouldn't be having sex. Like what? Where's that come from? You know, and, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. And so when I talk about reproductive health, we expanded it, one, because we wanted to include not just men and women, but not just cisgendered men and women. We wanted to make sure that it was including transgender men and women as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because they don't have access to health services in the way that they need, like equitable health services as well. Um, and so just, I've, you know, been, I've been blessed to work with a lot of organizations that have helped me to be a stronger um, ally to the LGBTQ community and especially the trans community and so Mm -hmm. just wanting to make sure that when we talk about reproductive health we talk about it in an open and equitable way because it's not just women who are getting infected and it's not just women who need free and healthy access it's everyone Uh, how do you um because we know well for people that don't know of course, Memphis is predominantly predominantly black, but it is also very religious. It's like a church on mm-hmm. every corner. We talk about that all the time. Mm-hmm. How do you talk to those people? Like, have you tried to reach out to the church? Because I know, like, in the South, Planned Parenthood is like a cuss word. Like, Planned Parenthood <laughs> is like the boogeyman. And they bring up, you know, the eugenics and all that stuff. How do right. you how do you kind of pull down that layer of defense that some religious black people might have or just religious people in general might have and get them talking about safe sex and not just abstinence, get them talking about abortion, get them talking about things that are, you know, that we need in our communities. So I think that one of the good things about it is a lot of black churches, especially as their pastors get younger are progressing. Um, to at least an understanding like abstinence is not popping off, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we need to provide everyone with the resources or the knowledge so that we're not risking lives by just saying abstinence only. Um, And so I think that 
that's been helpful. Um, very often, like I'm not going into churches talking about reproductive justice. Okay, it's on my flyers. I probably I mention it, um, and if people ask it, I'm I don't shy away from it. But mm-hmm. it's just not the topic of choice um, when I'm in that setting. Okay, but I have good friends who are pastors who sit on the black, on the Planned Parenthood board with me. Okay, you know, um, and so knowing that, like, I have. I had the belief that I think that there is some evolution and that there's definitely like older populations or, you know, things like that um, where people um, don't want to have those conversations or don't want to hear about it. Um, but I, I haven't run into that extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, not yet. Okay. But there's a lot of people, I mean, who don't believe in abortion and that's their right. Yeah. And that's their right. Just like it's others who believe in abortion. Um, and so like, I think what I advocate for is choice. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that more and more people are seeing that you've got to support folks no matter what decision they make. Um, and, and that's that to me, like when people talk about Christian living, it's whatever decision a person's life leads them to make that I love and support them and help them through whatever process. I was, um, now, I know we're talking and we're all serious right now, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I follow, well, in doing research for this, I've heard about the Memphis statues. It got a lot of media attention. So, of course, I knew who you were. But then, you know, we did background and <laughs> I'm, just now, I'm just now into social media on Twitter and I saw somebody on your Twitter of, and I'm a big, big Empire fan. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, my yeah, gosh, yeah. Like, I am so, <laughs> uh, you just don't know. I got chills when I was like, where oh, uh, I had to rein it in. So, um, how did you meet? <laughs> how did you meet Jesse Smollett? I'm sorry. This is, I know it's not as serious, but. People no, it's fine. It's cool. <laughs> People don't want to listen to serious all day. Uh, yeah, it was. I, I mean, it was fun. Um, it there's a show that's happening, and the show had started following the statue removal process. Um, I think we talked to them around August. Um, <laughs> and so I'd been in touch with them. And they'd been here, you know, getting footage off and on. Through everything that's been going on, Charlottesville, um, our trip to Athens, Tennessee, to um, testify to get the statues removed, just like all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, then no one thought the statues were coming down in 2017. You know, to me, mm. we had like a five-year plan, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, statues come down, so now they've got like a whole story, and they want to get it packaged pretty quickly to do an episode in their next season. Um, and the way the show is set up, they always have a celebrity guest, a host, who oh. does the interviews and does the voiceovers. It was supposed to be someone else. Um, but then they called me and was like, we'll be in Memphis next week uh, with Jesse Smollett. And will you be available? And I was like, I absolutely will be. I know I will be. <laughs> no, he was so cool, though. It was, it was like, I mean, honestly, I said it on social media and I reiterate it one of the nicest people I've ever met like wow 
really warm and genuine and I like laughed so much they probably like <laughs> have to cut half of what I say because I was like cracking up but oh that's just beautiful I mean that's and that's that just shows that if you can do something as wonderful and as activism and as powerful as ha- taking a stand on something and there are still people who appreciate that that are not from your city. That's why and, I don't pay Thaddeus Matthews any attention. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just shows that it's a bigger, it's a bigger thing. <laughs> we want to get him on the show, actually. I think that'll be funny. We're going to yeah, get him on top well, of that pocket. That would be real controversial. That's what we do. Don't quote me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Can I, I want to steer it. I want to steer it a little going back. um, Because I know you work for Teach for America. I work for Teach for America. What is diversity? Director of Diversity and Cultural Competence. Okay. So what would you say is one of the biggest issues facing uh, the Memphis public education system? Uh, the teacher pipeline. I think we have a teacher shortage um, that's only going to get bigger and some of our very like dedicated, uh, strong teachers reach retirement age. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, at any point, we have 200 vacancies um, wow. across the district. We've got, you know, we've got SES, Shelby County Schools, we've got the Achievement School District, and we've got a charter school network. And um, that number of vacancies is you know just uh it's hard and Mm -hmm. and it's and it it hurts our kids um progress um you know there was an article in chocolate about booker t washington high school and how uh kids took chemistry for a whole year and couldn't pass their state test Mm. because they never had a full-time teacher they'd had subs all year long and so of course money is a concern quality of the curriculum, mm. uh, teacher data, like all those things. But what I think we don't talk about enough is because we pay well. SES is, you, you come work low cost of living, decent start amount, you know, yeah. but getting people into the classroom and keeping them there, um, especially as more and more like baby boomers are going to retire um, and Gen Xers are getting up there, you know. So as that happens, I just think we need to, you know, consider um, consider what it looks like. So for New York, for example, has um, programs in addition to organizations like Teach for America or like Memphis Teacher Residents uh, or like Teach 901 that work to recruit teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that city government and county government should get involved as well. New York has the uh, New York Teachers Pipeline. Um, it's an initiative like a men of color, uh, teacher initiative, uh, you know, some states and some counties give incentives to teachers. Um, I know right now, uh, uh, Shelby County schools has a a bonus for anyone who signs for our high need areas. Mm. Um, and, and just getting, you know, um, someone needs to be going around to HBCUs and saying like, Hey, Teaching is still a very respectable uh, profession and you can, you know, it's tough, but you can make a living off of it and still live well. And teachers get all kind of perks and, yeah. you know, come, come to Memphis from Hampton, come to Memphis from FAMU, come to Memphis from Tuskegee. We'll give you a signing bonus and you're going to have a good cost of living and you're going to make a change in some kids' lives. And um, I think that's important. 
what would you say because I work in the education system myself and my mom uh-huh. uh does as well and my aunt does as well. Um <laughs> I'm seeing that I'm seeing that turnover rate especially with people my like the millennials uh-huh. and Gen Xs. Like I've seen people that couldn't even complete the the full school year because it was they thought yeah. it was just too tough. And it is it's yep. it's extremely tough. So what what can we do about that? You talk about the incentives, but then there's also just teaching in general and the classrooms right. and the difficulty of behaviors and the curriculum and all that stuff. What can we do to to help that to help keep teachers? What do you think? Yeah, I think you know that a lot of teachers just don't feel supported. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go into classrooms and they go into tough situations and, and they just kind of feel like they're thrown in there with nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when we get into talking about like where money is spent, how's it spent, you know, and all of the ways like we can make teachers feel more supported, even as, you know, we're working to fill the classrooms. How can we, uh, with teachers, how fill schools with teachers, how can we make sure that teachers don't feel alone and prepping them like you know you mentioned behavior a lot of kids you know come to school with a lot of trauma yeah we're not talking to to teachers about what youth-based trauma looks like Mm. and how that plays out in school so they're just thinking oh day one we're gonna learn our alphabet you know and all my like (laughs) kindergartners are gonna be sitting in cute little rows and you're like Let me tell you what day one's gonna look like. <laughs> yeah, and you just gotta be real with them. Yeah. That's what we try to do with my organization. You know, it's like day one might be two weeks long before you yeah. have a full day one. Yeah. Because it might take two weeks for you to get a full class. You know? And you might start third grade and by week three be in fifth grade. Mm. And you just gotta understand that like the flexibility that you're gonna need. Mm. And you might come have people whose kids show up out of uniform and they never going to have a uniform. They never going to have supplies. Yeah. You know, like you and you still got to love those babies the same and give them everything you can. And we're going to support you in doing that. That's the piece that's missing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we got to wrap around our kids. We also got to wrap around our teachers. That's the truth. That is definitely the truth. So what what do you do in your diversity? Um, what exactly do you do in that position? Just that, like pretty okay. much <laughs> what I just talked about. Like my role is to train our teachers. Uh, I, I design curriculum and opportunities, connect our teachers with organizations to get them one rooted in Memphis, meaning like that they're connected to the community. They're not just considering themselves to be visitors in the community, okay. you know? Um, and then two, um, their cultural competence. So being aware of your own identity, your own bias, how that plays out. You know, a lot of the things that we do to our kids that's traumatic for them comes out in moments of stress, mm-hmm. you know, and, yep. and then it's, it's irreversible. You know, you pop off on a kid once, they're going to remember that forever. You've lost them. Um, And how do we, you know, uh, keep from being harmful to our kids in moments of stress? Also understanding, like, uh, what is our kids' language? You know, one of my favorite books is uh, For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the Rest of Y'all Too by Dr. Christopher Emden. Um, He has this thing called reality pedagogy. um, And reality pedagogy puts first the language and culture of the students and you center your schools around that. 
So in understanding everything from what they eat, how they talk, what music they like, just those basic types of things. What yep. kind of clothes they're going to want to wear when they come to school, you know? How do you then build their education around their culture versus them coming in and we'd be like, this is how you act, this is how you dress. Mm-hmm. And you got to do all of that. You got to code switch at eight before you can <laughs> even learn how to multiply. Ain't right? that the truth? Yeah, that's true. It's real. For all your educational yeah. problems and, and see if yeah. something's solid. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Now, yeah. now that we got Tammy system. on here, Tammy, can you please solve all of our issues? Thanks. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also read that you um started Powerbox. Yeah. Um, a digital black business directory. Um, and so we talked about black businesses with our last um, guest, Seren. Um, can you talk a little bit about the significance of patronizing black businesses in Memphis where the, the, the black wealth is so, so small compared to our population? Yep, yep. So, you know, here in Memphis, the racial wealth gap is the average white person has wealth of, what, $94,600. The average black person, two thousand. So we're looking mm-hmm. at like a ninety-two thousand dollar racial wealth gap. Dang. One of the highest in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and forty-seven percent of our population is poor and uh, lives below the poverty line. And so when we, you know, are thinking about those things and we're thinking about where our money goes and you know how our communities are funded, it's very important for us to be you know, particularly to support black entrepreneurs and black businesses um, who you know are more likely to put their money back into the black community. I had someone asked me once if maybe I should just be talking about neighborhoods, but if the whole, if every neighborhood I'm talking about is black, then yeah, <laughs> what I'm talking about is black. So yeah. that doesn't really fly. <laughs> um, but I just think historically that you know, our our means of wealth have been destroyed from, yep. um, you know, Black Wall Street to, uh, you know, every, even here in Memphis, there was once a uh, booming Black business district mm-hmm. that was burned and looted and lynched by white rioters. Um, and then what the banks have done with redlining, destroying, you know, historically Black communities mm-hmm. and Black ownership of homes. And so when you're thinking about those things, I think it's really important for us to spend as much money as we can with black businesses and then to not always ostracize our businesses. You know, you go to a black business once, they slow, you be like, I ain't never going to pizza chicken wings again because, you know, but I've been sitting outside Chipotle for 30 minutes talking to y'all and there's a sign on the door that says outage and folks are still walking through. You know, I can't wait to see what this sign says. They probably ain't got nothing but chicken left. Right. Probably out of guacamole and folks still walking. Like, I, you know, like yeah. I, probably 50, 60 people have walked past me since we've been on the phone, you know, because when I get off, I'm going to go get a bowl, you know? And so, like, <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to go tweet about Chipotle having outage signs on its door, but let this have been like Zach's chicken and waffles. Yeah. It would have been all on Facebook. Like, I went and they didn't have waffles today. How are you going to have a business? But no one, <laughs> no one in Memphis is tweeting about Chipotle with this big ass outage sign right, right. Exactly. You it's a saying? double standard. Exactly. But who has more resources? Chipotle should never have an outage sign. But ain't nobody stopped 
going inside and no one's going <laughs> to tweet about this today. You're not going to hear about this except for me telling you right now that on this Sunday, February, what's today? 11th or 10th, there's an outage at Chipotle. You're not going to see it on social media. Our, our, you know, and all of this boycotting we're doing because people constantly are playing us and playing our money. Yep. Every time I fly first class, I got to remind somebody, this is my seat. Mm-hmm. Every time I, I and I, I fly pretty frequently and I have to be like, yes, I know what line I'm in. <laughs> white people, you know, exactly. Uh, exactly. Excuse me, sir. I'm going to need you to stand up because I need to walk past you. Uh, yes, I know this is the fourth row on the plane and first class. Like, and nobody, you know, and you don't and check the ticket. Exactly. Yet, and still, I still fly Delta religiously. Mm. And like, I understand like boycotts and you know all of that other stuff. And I agree with them. I agree when people try to play us for the left. We got to hold our money back. But you don't just need to hold our money back. You need to take that money and put it in black businesses. Right. We get so mad at ourselves. We'd be like, anything, any little thing. Yep. It was a grease stain on the floor. I ain't never going back there. They dirty. I bet if I go in the bathroom <laughs> in Chipotle when we get off the phone. You know what I mean? Like, we've got to give our businesses a chance. we got to give them our feedback. we got to give them our money. Uh, and um, people can become better business owners people become better employees people just the, the the more opportunity they have to to do their service exactly and like you said we don't exactly have all those accesses to to certain resources we might not have had right. those mentors to show us exactly mm-hmm. how to do this that and the other we might not have had the time to train our uh, cousin them who work at the business to, to be the best customer service representatives in America. Like you have to, there has to be that, that, that um, leeway kind of, and you're exactly yeah. right. Like Chipotle, E. Coli, like people were dying from eating Chipotle and people still go. I still go. <laughs> and I, I still, so. I'm sitting, I'm waiting to get my phone call, you know? <laughs> We have so outage and all. So, um, again, on uh, a little bit more on uh, the economic side, uh, like you said, uh, Memphis is, we said, 47% poverty. I still hear, even from black people, like some of my own family members, we live in Cordova. I mean, we're not living in Germantown, but we're we're considered middle class, but we ain't got it like that. But they still, my mom came from dirt poverty, you know, but now that she's made it, now it's like her and my other aunties them are like, well, the reason them <laughs> people didn't make it is because... They just don't know how to manage their money. The reason them people right. didn't make it is because they just didn't go to college or they just didn't do this or that. What What do you say to those people? Because I literally don't even know what to say. Even though when you look down in their story, the only reason they made it is because somebody from higher up gave them a hand. But it's like they're still they're still placing all the blame on the people that's living in the the mess on their on mm-hmm. you know their poverty. What do you say to those people? I mean, internalized racism is real. Mm. And the things that we think about our people don't necessarily just come from ourselves. I think it was Dick Gregory. He said, I learned that niggas wasn't shit from my sister. (laughs) You know, he was like, every black woman in my family was poor and single. Uh And all they did was talk about men being niggas and ain't shit. And so I became an ain't shit nigga because I thought that's what a man was supposed to be. Mm. And 
where does that narrative come from? And it goes all the way back to slavery when our families were separated and divided and taught to hate each other and not believe in each other and, and not support each other. And it continued with reconstruction and lynching and the uh, beginning of mass incarceration through mm. uh, convict leasing destroyed our families even further. And yet here we are today where now due to modern the war on drugs, mass incarceration, black men have been removed from our families. Uh, economic opportunity has destroyed us and we don't see the whole picture. So we believe that we just pulled ourselves up by the bootstrap. Mm. We became middle-class black people because we worked hard. We had all this opportunity. And if other people just didn't do drugs or just didn't drink or just didn't gamble <laughs> or got up and went to church on Sunday, they'd be okay too. <laughs> yeah. And that is not how systemic oppression works. How you have that conversation with your mama? I don't know. Because <laughs> a lot of people of our mother's generations just don't understand it. They don't. You know? They just don't get it because they worked hard. They did. They worked yeah, hard. They did. You know, and, and and they and they lived their life in a way like that they felt was responsible for what came their way. But my mother is like your mom. She's the oldest of nine, raised in the projects of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And she's the only one who made it. Right? Mm -hmm. And I got maybe 40 or 50 cousins stuck <laughs> in a system of poverty. My brother and I are the only of my grandmother's children who went to college. We're the only ones who didn't have kids before getting married. We're the only ones with decent income. We're the only ones, you know, um, not, never, you know, been in jail for violence or, you know, drug offenses. Mm -hmm. Those type of things. And like, but my mom was able to break the cycle because of her father's family. Mm. She had a different opportunity. And it's, you know, things come together for people differently. You got to look at sometimes you got an opportunity other folks don't have. Right. And you got to recognize those opportunities don't come along or we would all be in the NBA or we would all be singing on The Voice or we would yeah. all have businesses like Oprah. It's not just about working hard. Yeah, the people who get those places work hard. But we got to stop saying that, like, you know, people say Michael Jackson shot a thousand free throws a day. That's how he became Michael. I mean, Michael Jordan yeah. shot a thousand free throws a day. That's how he became Michael Jordan. That's not how Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan. A couple of perfect circumstances came together for someone to decide that's him. And then he was charismatic enough to not just be another basketball player, but to be a superstar. Right. Right. You know? And there's a kid out there who shoots 2,000 baskets a day thinking he's heard this Michael Jordan shot 1,000 baskets a day story. So I'm going to shoot 2,000 and I'm going to be the next Michael Jordan and Kobe and all of them combined. And they end up not doing any of that. And that, that was, that's what messed us up. I think that's what messes, messed a lot of us millennials up. Like, that's why yeah. a lot of us are like, we graduated, we get our degrees. Like, where is my six-figure job? Because that's what we were told. My mother and father just now have realized that. I, I had to explain that to them. I was like, y'all sold us a, 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 a dream. Yeah. We, you know, when I was growing up, my parents wouldn't let me get a job in high school. My dad finally let me work one summer. Mm-hmm. But he was like, it's our job to work. It's your job to go to school. That was my parents, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I was supposed to go to school. I was supposed to go to college. I was supposed to go to law school. I was supposed to graduate. I was supposed to be an attorney. 
I'm supposed to get married. I'm supposed to have kids. I'm mm. supposed to be a, 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 you know, work for the state. That was supposed to be the order. Have a nice house. Have two nice cars. My kids go to private school. Like all of that was what yeah. was supposed to happen. And the bottom fell out. By the time mm. I graduated college in 2004, I was on my way to law school. There was no money for being a lawyer. Mm. You know, I, I went to Howard Law with 150 other people and maybe 10 percent of my graduating class got jobs that offered more than one hundred thousand dollars. Wow. But one hundred and fifty of us had loans that equaled three, four hundred thousand. Oh, my God. You know, uh, maybe a lot of people I left law school, thankfully, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of people were. Uh, graduate in law school and end up working in uh, back offices with 15 other people in one room highlighting documents mm. for major firms with no insurance. Dang. With, with uh, Making hourly salaries. You know, and so, like, there's a lot of people floating around like, damn, what happened to the American dream? Like, we're not getting married. Mm. We're not buying houses. We're not buying cars. And it, when we do, we're getting them taken. Yeah. <laughs> our cars are getting repossessed. Our houses are getting foreclosed. Yep. Our, our marriages are getting ended in divorce. Or we just got kids. Because that wasn't enough. Because there was a, still a lot of systems at play. And there were still, when the bottom fell out, we weren't the consideration. Because if you look at what the Republicans and Trump are talking about, with rebuilding America, we're not in that picture. Oh no, they're talking to the farmers and the coal miners and you know yep. the poor white rural people, telling them we're going to get money back to you. They're not talking to us. They're putting us in jail. Yep. Oh Lord, what can, what can we do? So I, I guess we're going to end it on that. We ain't going to end it on nothing yeah. depressing. <laughs> what can we do? What, what can, can we, do? we do? Let's let's end it on that because. Millennials, I feel like in this last election, um, a lot of millennials set out in the presidential election. And, you know, we really don't get that involved in the state and local elections at all. So what do you think we can do to get more of millennials who are suffering probably the most out of everybody? What can we do to get them more involved into uh, politics and in their community? I think we just have to see, like what the how how this chess game is being played mm-hmm. i mean you know we're just now getting on the table and our our pieces have been moved around for us for a long time and so we have this trust of the political system which is understandable and okay and mm-hmm. real you know um but it's just like we got to take it back just like we got to support our businesses and take back our communities. We got to take, you know, we got to take some political power uh, that we're owed that is rightfully ours. And um, and then we got to make sure we get in there and don't do the same thing that others have done. Um, you know, it was said during the civil rights movement, once people stopped being civil rights activists and started being um, politicians, that that's when the civil rights movement died. Mm. But we've got to look at it like this holistic thing. like. If some of us run for office, that's continuing the movement because those folks are going to shape policy. 
not get swallowed by the system as is, but change the system. Right. You know, so you shouldn't have to come petition me in five years to make me get woke again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like you shouldn't in five years. I'd be like, come on, Tammy. Like, you don't remember five years ago you was an activist. And I'm sitting there looking at you like I ain't never talked to you. Before. <laughs> like, you the podcast episode. Do you remember? Like, <laughs> exactly. Like five years from now, you'd be like, oh, she was lit in 2018, 2023. I'm looking at you like, uh leave a message at the beat, right. you know? And so <laughs> passing policy that doesn't, you know, make any sense. And so we, we just can't repeat the mistakes of the past. Like we've gotten a little power, we've gotten a little money and we got complacent. You know, we can't let that, we can't let that make us complacent. Now we gotta, we gotta shake up the system and that's going to hurt some of us. Shaking mm-hmm. up the system might cause us some contracts, might cause us some discomfort, might, you know, make us lose some relationships. But if we just go into politics and and become a part of what's been the problem, what's the point? No, no one's going to go vote for us if we're going to, you know, do business as usual. Right. And we can't also expect, like, they put stuff on millennials and they put stuff on black people. They'd be like, y'all don't vote. First of all, black people vote very well. Yes, they do. Yeah. That's a myth. Millennials, not so much. Mm -hmm. But why should we? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I'm saying, did y'all give us a reason, make us believe, because the world is a shit show right now. Mm-hmm. It's a dumpster fire, and y'all <laughs> been voting. Y'all been voting, right? Right. And now it's like, millennials are what? Uh, between 38 and, and 18 or something like that now? Mm-hmm. So that group has watched the world turn into this hot, humbling mess, and you want to talk to us about, well, if you voted, no, y'all been voting for years. Exactly. Yes, that's what I've been saying. So, and <sighs> I'm just saying, like, yes, if you're listening to me, millennials, go vote. Yeah. And go run for office and donate to your friends who run for office. Because it's not cheap because the powers that be got all kind of money just sitting on it to make sure that folks like us can't come disrupt the system because we can't outspend them. Sure do, yep. But if sure. we are like, I'm only voting for righteous ass people then we change the game because money can't run politics if the people run politics. If I could get 50,000 people to get up and go vote for me right now without spending a dime because they believe in the righteousness of what I believe in, that, you know, dumps all over what politics has become. Yep. Politics should not be about who can raise the most money. But unfortunately, we have to get excited. You know, I look at, I'm like, oh, yay, we got another check. I find myself almost obsessed with it <laughs> because I'm like, oh, we've got to have money. Last yeah. time I ran for office, we didn't have that much money. Now I'm like able to raise a little bit more money and I'm like excited about it. I'm like, well, that's not even the purpose. Like I want to touch the people. Right, right. And so I just want us to like realize sometimes we want to dismantle systems. You got to change systems from the inside out. We mm. can't change politics without being in politics. But once we get in politics, we got to remember that we're there to change it. That's the thing. That's the key. That's it. Woo. Tammy, you you gave us some gems. We we really enjoyed Big you one. today, y'all. And uh, let me let me let me plug it. Tammy Sawyer for people that are living in Memphis for our Memphis listeners. She is running for County Commission District Seven. Go to her Facebook page. What's your? Can you plug your Facebook and where they can find you and where they can donate and stuff like that? 
Yep, my campaign website is www.tamysawyer.com. That's T-A-M-I-S-A-W-Y-E-R. My Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are at Tammy Sawyer. Yes, everybody go there, follow her on Twitter, tell her that we sent you, follow her on Facebook, donate if you can. She's doing great work. Um, definitely, we'll help in any way that we can because you, you're doing great work. So you got you got my vote. I don't live in your district, but I'm going to get people to vote for you. Um, <laughs> so, um, and remember, you can uh, hit us up on social media, facebook.com slash talkitoutpodcast, Instagram at talkitoutpodcast, Twitter at talkitout underscore pod, at us and Tammy Sawyer. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Let us know about uh, what you thought about the topics we discussed. Remember, you can listen to us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash talkitout, Instagram.com. No, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, tune in, wherever you can find a podcast, we are there. Thank you again, Tammy Sawyer, so much for coming on, for giving us a little bit of your time. We know you're a busy woman, but we appreciate you. All right, this was fun. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. And this has been your girl, Gabby. And KT. And And Joy Joy is gone. (laughs) And this has been Talk It Out. And we out.